Welcome to this week in Missouri Politics from the state capitol in Jefferson City, Missouri. We are joined by a leading senator, member of Senate, of Senate Leadership, Senator Bill White from Southwest Missouri. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Let's just start off the top. You've this week announced uh, you've had a committee hearings that have went on since the whole FRA special session. You've worked on some ways. Well, I'll let you define what's in the report. Well, this is the first part of the, the report. They'll, we'll actually do two reports out of committee. This first part is dealing with the issue of uh, facilities that are related to abortion clinics and funding through Medicaid. And so we've been looking at that. So, uh, as you're familiar with the FRA issue we had at the end of session and then the special session, what we were able to do and not do. So the President Pro Tem set up this committee, which I was very happy to chair. Uh, we've heard testimony from the two departments. We had a public hearing testimony day. We had about 40 people testify, both pro and con. Uh, about the issue of funding. Uh, and so we're producing a draft report. We're gonna go over the draft report today with the committee. We won't be hearing any testimony. And once we're done going over it and getting the input from the committee, we'll then finalize the draft and put it out for people to sign. I'm just a simple hillbilly. You're a very, one of the most educated senators <laughs> that are in the body. It just feels to me like, it always, I always scratch my head. You run as a pro-life person, pro-gun person, very openly. Most all Republicans put that at the top of their literature. And then you get elected, and some people are surprised that you actually try to do pro-life, pro-gun things. In my gut, it feels like this is a committee set up to, instead of trying to do it with a big hatchet that probably never works, I always see these bills come out of the legislature that tries to cut Planned Parenthood. It looks like you're trying to cut Planned Parenthood, but cut them with a scalpel in a way that might actually be effective. Well, uh I'm very sensitive to what we do, that it's constitutional. Yeah. And not just constitutional by what the Supreme Court says, but actually what's written in our state constitution. Which is a challenge to it, single out a group. You can't. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you just can't do it. And uh, do we really want to? Don't we want to deal with all uh, potential future abortion providers and their affiliates? Uh, so that's one of the things we've taken an approach on this. Uh, Planned Parenthood was mentioned because they were an example, used as an example. But uh, we are working within... What the guidelines of the federal government? There are things that we can't overdo, undo. Uh, example, you know, there for family planning, uh, there's an any willing provider clause that is very clear and has been upheld in many court decisions. You get to go to wherever you want to for family planning. So I, I always see in the legislature. You know, this is just me setting up in the peanut gallery. Republicans come out and pass an abortion bill, and and they're all excited, and, and frankly, their constituents are excited. But then a few months later, a year later, this word comes out from the court says any willing provider, and that law gets pretty well gutted. That's happened over and over and over, and it almost feels like, you know, when, when I heard you were chairing this committee, I thought, well, this might be an approach to maybe take all those court rulings and try to find something that would withstand scrutiny. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, we're staying within the guidelines that we have to follow by the federal government. Uh, you know, I think one of the things people have to realize is the Medicaid population prior to expansion, which we haven't really expanded yet, is a very pro-life topic. You're dealing with pregnant women, you're dealing with kids, uh, disabled individuals, and seniors that are you know, very at the end of their life, they're in nursing homes. Those are the only people we have until we implement the expansion on Medicaid. And therefore, Medicaid is a pro-life issue with me. It's very pro-life. Uh, we're dealing with pregnant women and kids. Uh, so. Uh, I want to make sure we don't do anything to jeopardize our funding for that. I mean, that was part of the big fight with the end of the FRA, that uh, trying to pass the amendment that was proposed, uh, with the time limit we had, it would have been filibustered and it would have not passed. 
So let's talk about, we talk about federal courts and abortion. There's a heartbeat bill that was passed, again, to great fanfare here in the Capitol. It is now being heard in the Eighth Circuit. You were a supporter of that bill? Yes. As an attorney, what arguments led you to feel comfortable voting for that, that it would actually stand up? Well, some of the, the heartbeat bill, the different various weak bills, the bills that are based off of what level of development the fetus is and when, when, whether you can feel pain or not feel pain, those kinds of things are, how would I describe it? They're analytical in what is the level that the federal government is doing to, to justify when a person becomes a person. Uh, I disagree, obviously, with Roe v. Wade. Uh, that, you know, you could, under pure Roe v. Wade, you could have an abortion until while you're going into labor, basically, uh, using that logic. And in the past, in some states, it's been that way. Uh, we take in our statutes, and we make it pretty clear in our report, the state has a very vested interest, a compelling interest to protect life, including life of the unborn. We view in this state, statutorily, life begins at conception. And therefore, when you do something to kill the fetus, you're killing a human being. You're killing a person. And the various, the heartbeat bill, the various weak bills, the various developmental bills such as pain are things we're trying to do to get around what's already been thrown out in court. Uh, to say, this is, no, no, this is not a thing. This is a person. In the day, give me a prediction. Will substantial pieces of this legislation hold up through federal court scrutiny? I think so. Let's talk about something that would brought a lot of scrutiny. I'll try to give the cliff notes, and you stop okay. me where I mess it up. Last week at veto session, uh, $27 billion budget. The governor vetoes a few line items. The House overrode a few of their House bills. They start there. Come to the Senate, there was two that a couple senators wanted to override. The traditions always held the budget chairman is the one that anybody, you have bills, he has, it's his bill, he has to bring his bill up to be overridden. Some senators wanted to go against that tradition and allow a different senator to bring up another senator's bill. While, and their argument was it's a budget bill. It's not like a regular bill. The body came pretty well against that at the end of the day. You were somebody that I believe knows the Senate rules pretty good, and maybe even the traditions. You come from a part of the state that has historically sent very traditional senators, Dick Webster, Ron Richard, to this chamber. What was your take on what happened at veto session? Uh, I was not happy that we brought those two bills up for discussion. I would have rather, I, I believe that we have the tradition. It, there's tradition and then there's tradition. The way the Senate runs, not, not talking about my coffee cup, which I always complained about, I can't have my Marine Corps coffee cup because that's tradition. That, that's little tradition. Tradition of how we run the Senate. You, you can't put everything in writing for how you run an organization. Uh, I will be at, at caucus. I'll be discussing that we need to put that in the rules. That's going to be one of my suggestions is that, no, the bill handler, uh, the bill sponsor is the bill sponsor, or if it's a handler in the Senate, they are the controlling all the way through, including veto. Uh, Andrew Koenig's bill, uh, he you know, brought it up, made a comment, and then went through it because he agreed the morning issues with, that the governor had with it and is going to fix it next time around. Uh, I think it would be totally inappropriate for me to be able to hop and say, no, no, I, and I was going to vote for the override on that bill. <laughs> I actually like a lot of that bill, uh, but it, what, it is not. I mean, he's the bill handler. He's the person that's went through all, he knows all the discussion, all the interaction, the interplay that's happened between all the parties to get that bill where it's at. And to have me, who just was peripherally involved in some of the issues and not on all of them, 
uh, to say, no, no, Bill Handler, I'm going to, Bill Sponsor, I'm going to take over your bill and we're going to do it this way, even though you've decided that, no, the governor's veto was reasonable or had, had some merit to it. It's just inappropriate. And the fact it is not written in the rules, I agree with that part. Uh, therefore, I will make a motion in caucus that we put it in the rules. And you pull the lieutenant governor out of having to be at the focal point oh, of that. I mean, that, that whole thing was a, a red herring. That I could yeah. have been on the dais and it would have been the yeah. same thing. The yeah. fact that the lieutenant governor's up there and he's a member of the executive branch, when he's on that dais, he's not a member of the executive branch. He is a member of both. He is a member of both. Yeah. He, is, he is, has a legislative responsibility up there, and he, is, he has the same authority on that dais if I were up there doing it. Talk to me about some tort reform bills that, are, that you're thinking about maybe coming up in this session. Well, we've got a tort reform bill that actually has two components to it. Uh, one is the empty chair defense, is what it's called. Uh, basically what it is, if, if uh, you get sued, say a car accident, and you're 10% liable for the accident, you're 10% at fault, you didn't do something quite right, but the car that caused it is 80% at fault. The trouble is that person had a $20,000 insurance policy. What the plaintiffs are doing is they settle with that individual out of court. They, just, they settle it to the maximum of the insurance policy. When the lawsuit is filed, that person is not a part of the lawsuit, even though they're responsible for 80% of that responsibility for the wreck. It could you, be that they don't have a lot of money, and the person with 10% does money. have money. They, right? yeah. you're, you're, the, you're a trucking company. Your truck was somehow, you know, the logs weren't right in the whatever, so 10% responsible. And maybe the state's in there because they hit a guardrail and the guardrail didn't hold up as well as we thought it would. So the state's 10% liable. Well, the way our statutes are written, the two parties that are 10% each bear the 100% responsibility. They're going to pay the whole thing. And there's no concern, you know, the, the fact that they were only 10% liable, uh, they're going to be paying 100%. And we do have a, stat, a thing in our statutes where if you're over, found over 50% liable, then you're liable for the whole thing. And the rationale would be they have money, so you sue the people with money. Basically, and even that, if you're 99% liable, if you don't have money, you don't sue poor people, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, it, you, the argument is, well, gee, you know, the, the poor innocent victim. But there's a, the whole thing with justice is there's a fairness component to it. If you're 10% liable, should you be paying 100% or 90% of the cost? Uh, there, it, there's a fairness, not only a fairness to the person who was not at fault that was injured in it, but a fairness to all the other people. They're citizens too. They're, they're people in our, you know, they're corporations, the people, the drivers. I, there's, it's, it's not fair that we allow that type of scenario where they intentionally, the person who's at fault is not even a part of the trial. Well, what, what this does is it allows the, that you have to plead it ahead of time, it allows to come to the jury that, no, wait, these people were 80% responsible, here's the evidence, they're 80% responsible, and that can be taken into account in their verdict on... Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. We'll be right back with our Opinion Maker panel of Caitlin Shalhorn, the editor of the Missouri Times, here to keep us honest after this. For more than a century, the St. Louis Carpenters Union has shaped our communities. Through trusted alliances, we deliver skilled professional craftspeople while our business partners provide the kind of quality jobs that keep our economy humming. It's a blueprint that has worked since 1882. Turning Missouri into a right-to-work state stalls progress, wipes out jobs, and kills momentum. Right-to-work is wrong for everyone. Let's keep Missouri moving forward. Visit carpdc.org to learn more. 
All across Missouri, our new car and truck dealers are building strong local economies. When you buy a car or truck in Missouri, you're helping to support over 20,000 Missouri families who rely on the auto industry for good-paying local jobs. You're also helping fund our communities, schools, first responders, and our roads because dealers generate millions of dollars in tax revenue. Missouri's automobile dealers have been the foundation of our communities for generations and for generations to come. The Missouri Automobile Dealers Association, the heart of Missouri. Your energy needs are changing. That's why at Ameren, Missouri, we're not waiting on the future. We're building it with the Smart Energy Plan, advancing thousands of projects across the state, helping reduce emissions through cleaner energy sources, boost reliability with self-healing equipment, and better withstand storms with new composite poles. Moving Missouri forward and bringing us all a little closer together. That's energy at work. Ameren, Missouri. Welcome back to Week in Missouri Politics. Opinion maker panel time here from the state capitol. We grabbed him right for his committee hearing. Senator Mike Searpoy from Lee Summit. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. New rep David Tyson Smith of Columbia. Yes, sir. The Mizzou District, correct? Downtown, all of it? You got it. Love it. And Caitlin Shower and the other Missouri Times, thank you for joining us. Thanks for letting me. So explain to me what's happening this week in the court. Seems like we talk about abortion a lot, but uh, the heartbeat bill, these bills are in the Eighth Circuit now. What's the status of that? So a few years ago, Missouri passed uh, House Bill 126. It was the massive abortion bill that banned abortions essentially at eight weeks, and it had some nestled components in it. That's been making its way through the court system for a few years. There was a hearing in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals on Monday. The state is really doing something I think is interesting. It's focusing on there's a Down syndrome component to the bill, saying that you cannot um, have, you know, a woman should not have an abortion solely based on a Down syndrome diagnosis. And that's kind of what the state is focusing on here in court. Senator Zerboy, I've watched these, you, your wife, there's been abortion bills passed, seems like every May, there's a big piece of legislation that passes. And then a few months later, a federal court kicks it out. It seems like that cycle goes on repeat a lot. This bill was apparently written specifically to avoid that. Do you think it does? I hope so. Um, I, I personally just wish that the, the Supreme Court would reverse row and trust democracy. I think states can handle this issue if they would just get out of the way. I think ever since they, 72, 73, when they did that, that's when the partisan divide got so, started growing so much. When the courts hijack these issues, democracy can't work. We can't find compromise. When your judge can beat up my judge, there's no reason to talk. And if they would get out of the way, I think we'd figure out a way to sort this. Representative, you're actually an attorney. Yes. I watch these bills for years and years and years. They come out. Now, I'm not saying they all get thrown out, but for the most part, the any willing provider, all these things come out, and, and they get about a third of the bill gets through federal scrutiny. This one now is going through that process. What do you think happens? I don't think anybody knows, and I think especially what happens happened in Texas where the Supreme Court allowed that bill to, to remain um, I don't like what that means for this bill. I mean, I'm not in favor of this bill that's moving. You know, it's interesting, and this is one of the challenges, I think, with, with this bill and issues of choice. You know, being a new legislator, you know, we had the veto session a few days ago, and I came into my office, and I heard all this raucous cheering and clapping. And I thought, what's going on? You know, there's always something going on in the rotunda. And I thought, well, we had a caucus meeting, and we were coming out to the session. And I thought, well, I'm going to stop by for a minute and see what that is. And so I go down there, and it's packed, and it's, it's basically kind of an anti-vaxxer, you know, anti-mask rally. And people are clapping and cheering. And, and it was great. I mean, they, they had a right to do that. Um, and it was loud, and they were boisterous. But, and I get emails from the same uh, people who are at this rally and, and talking to other politicians who are in support of this. And the sentiment is always... Um, 
you know, it's my body, it's my choice, sure. right? My body, my choice. Um, and even in situations where people are choosing not to be vaccinated, uh, they could put other people at harm that can't be vaccinated, like their, like their children. So you might have a parent who says, I'm not going to be vaccinated, but that could hurt my child. But then on the House floor, when we talk about abortion issues, the argument is uh, it's about life and the sanctity of life. And I'm a person of faith as well, but I just wonder why we don't talk about life on the other side. And I think that's where a lot of the controversy comes in because it's difficult to wrap your mind around. I mean, why aren't, you know, when we talk about vaccines, we're talking about choice and it's my body. But when we talk about abortion, how come we're not talking about choice over there? Well, I would say if you do like talking about abortion, you're going to love the Missouri House of Representatives. And if you don't, it's going to be a long time. <laughs> Mike Zerboy, I may ask you this. If this bill is struck down, there'll be another one, right? I, I, absolutely, there will be. I think if this bill strikes down, there may be another one anyway, but there'll be another one again, right? Oh, I have no doubt. Dayla, what yeah. do you think? You, you followed this closely, anybody I know. I'm, What's the momentum here? Does this withstand scrutiny? I mean, I, you see it already. There's bills in the work now to mirror what's going on in Texas, which is different than the Missouri law in the sense that it allows private citizens to sue someone who performs an abortion. And, you know, there's lawmakers here that are already working on getting that through um, Missouri this coming session. Representative, this entire state, the history of this state has had a pro-life, pro-gun majority. Whether it was Democrats or Republicans in the majority had a pro-life, pro-gun majority. I just wonder if Republican, if, if Roe vs. Wade's overturned, will Republicans like what they get? I'm not sure the public, you know, the, the, usually the, it's like right now in the midterm elections, the party out of the White House has intensity, they're excited. I wonder if Roe vs. Wade goes away, if that same pro-life intensity holds up. I don't know. And that, that's an interesting point to bring up about politics, because a lot of people advocate for their base and they fight for these issues. And it's easy to do when you don't have what you want. But then when you get it, does a pendulum swing? Your, your, your entire career, your wife's entire career, this Roe versus Wade has been, been law. If, will people in Lee's summit like what they get if Roe versus Wade is overturned? I think the vast majority of them will. Like I said, I think, I don't, I don't know that it'll be an easy path and we'll have to continuously tweak it. But I think that's, you sit down and you work things out. I don't think anybody will be happy. The pro-choice people definitely won't because I think Missouri will be a very pro-life state and our laws will reflect that. But I don't know that we'll, will do everything. I think there'll be compromise. You have rape and incest. Back in the 90s, uh, we had partial birth, and the Democrats always split on that. So That's really where they split. Yeah. I remember that. And, and so, we, but we'll work through it. I trust democracy. I think we can get through it. Let's talk about something you're deeply involved in in Columbia. Sure. Uh, something called critical race theory. Absolutely. Before we get into what's happening in the news on it, what is that? So that's the million-dollar question, right? And there's a lot of debate about what it means. Um, Critical race theory primarily is taught at the graduate school level. It's really not taught at K through 12. And there's a big controversy about it as if it's being taught to students here. Um, a lot of it, what it deals with is like systemic racism. And it talks about, you know, systems in place in America that have contributed to racism and the lingering effects of those. So a lot of it's history. Um, but it is interesting because really at, at the lower level, it's not really being taught, but there's been a big issue about it. So now pretty much anything that talks about African-American history or slavery or, or racism is now, you know, coupled together as critical race theory and people in an outrage. But there's really nothing terrible that's being taught right now in school. It's history. Kayla, when you write about that, what, what is critical race theory? I mean, that's just a great question. It's, it's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, 
there are opponents to critical race theory who will say that it's teachings that make people feel or make students, young students, feel guilty about the color of their skin or sexuality or anything like that. Um, but then you have, you know, like the representative here discussing that it's just, you know, there are people who are critical about teachings of slavery or, you know, America's history and what did happen in the past. So it, the answer to your question is honestly, it depends on who you ask. So, Senator, I guess there's going to be bills to ban this. We'll it's see. It's going to be hard to define, right? It is, and, and my opinion is I, I've got a lot of constituents very upset, and I've met with many of them. And I, I, agree, I think there is an issue here. I think some of these school districts, the curriculum is not appropriate for – it doesn't reflect the values of that community. And I think history should be, be, be taught very accurately. I have no problem with that. But when, what I've understood is, is some of the things they're after is equality in outcomes rather than, uh, rather than equal opportunity. And I think equal opportunity is critical. I don't think we can force outcomes. And I, I've told people back home that if you're unhappy, you don't want Jeff City fixing this because we won't fix it properly. We're a sledgehammer. If you want it fixed, get involved with your school district, win a school board election, and then you can get involved in picking curriculum, and that's how you fix it. Now, this came into the news in Columbia. Representative Basie from, from Boone County, one of the superintendent of Columbia schools fired over, I guess, teaching this? Is what, he what wanted, yeah, well, he wanted our superintendent to resign, yeah. which, you know, I support our superintendent, and I think that's absurd. Um, you know, we've got a great Columbia public school system, and it was nothing more than an attack on our Columbia public school system. And critical race theory has really been used in many ways to attack public school. And it's a, it's a vehicle to get in there and bash public schools. We have a great public school system in Columbia, great people, great school board. They work very hard. And that was uncalled for. I mean, our superintendent has only been there a few months. And to call for his resignation because a teacher was showing a class a video to actually analyze a video about what it meant, and uh, along with other ar art and, and literature, is, is, is ridiculous. So, Senator, I have always, you've been a very loud proponent of charter schools and school reform. I've generally kind of scratched my head at you sometimes. But I tell you, the issue that's kind of brought me around to your way of thinking is Gussie shows up to school, first day of school, the government straps a mask on his face. Now, he's a five-year-old kid. It's hard to keep shirts on him all the time. And they think he's going to wear a mask all day. I, I, I think there's a bigger piece of your efforts have always been thwarted by rural folks. It's not been some erudite PhD person writing some study that somebody reads and says, oh, I didn't know, it's page 78 says this. It's been rural guys banging on their reps to not mess with their local schools. It feels like a lot of our institutions, and now maybe this bond is being torn apart, critical race theory, and now forcing little kids to wear a mask all day. At some point, maybe the parents should get to choose some things. I agree. I think last year we finally passed a, a modified reform bill. I think COVID had a part of that. I think, yeah. it, I think it changed a few minds. My efforts have always been to empowering parents to do what's best for their kids. And uh, I, I hope we continue down that path. I think this, I think some people are finally realizing uh, the critical race theory, the mask mandates, some of the other stuff that these schools are doing, they're getting very far away from the people that pay the bills. And I think uh, this will force some changes on that. Is generally they were not. And most folks, I went to Neelyville High School, loved Neelyville High School. Neelyville High School actually does pretty well the same things that, that I would like them to do. But I, I don't want you to mess with Neelyville High School. And I think what you're seeing is some folks in some of these schools, and it's not just all St. Louis and Kansas City anymore. You see folks in Farmington up in arms. You go ahead and talk to Tom Burcham today. He's not happy. He's a Farmington Knight. I think what you're seeing is, I think what you're seeing is that bond from, from those school districts, those rural legislators and their school districts being torn and, and I don't know that anybody's going to think that, that Centerville Schools is teaching critical race theory, if they've even heard of it. But you do see these masks, and you do see that bond is slowly being separated. And I think it may be reflected legislatively.
You know, and that goes back to the, ma I mean, the vaccine issue. I mean, if people get vaccinated, we're not going to have the mask issue, right? It's like there's a whole group of people say, well, I'm not going to be vaccinated, but then this virus continues to proliferate. And then so now we're back to masks and masks work. Well, I have a daughter that's 12 years old. Last year, she had to finish school in a mask. She turned 12 over the summer. She wanted to get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And one of her reasons was, well, I don't have to wear a mask all day. Mm -hmm. She gets to school, they strap the mask on her. Right. So right. really, she's a very intelligent young lady, but her, her, one of her motivating factors was just, I'm not saying it was deceitful, but I think there's a certain part, Caitlin, that, that some folks think this won't end. I saw Eric Schmidt, who's been a warrior on these things. He says, now St. Louis County's doing something in anticipation of something happening. There is a feeling, I think, growing of, of people that have, that have worn a mask when they were asked to, that have got vaccinated, that this just isn't going to end. Yeah, I, I think you see that this, you know, COVID's been in the news cycle for over a year now and people are, are tired of it. They're tired of having to um, change their lives and their habits around and, and want to get back to normal. But, you know, what does that look like now? It'll be interesting. Mike Zerboy, do you think when the legislature meets... I don't know that next year's a school reform bill, but I think they're going to start coming more rapidly than they ever have before. I think so. I think we'll probably see how this other one tests out for a year or two. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's more reform. There needs to be more, more reform. We're, it, it, my efforts have always been in the big, big schools, Kansas City, uh, some of the uh, St. Louis area, Hickman Mills, that are not doing particularly well. Getting, I like, I've always tried to empower parents to get kids out of bad buildings into good buildings. And my, my efforts will continue. Um, We've got to do something. That's one thing that's going to change things is get these kids an education. I watched you and Todd Richardson perfect the bill in the House once that was you guys had knuckles attached to some of those votes. I think those rule guys always felt like, well, if you do it there, then you'll do it to us. And now they're seeing that they're, they're not even trying to do anything that would be uniform and supportive in the state. I just think those bonds are going away. Education has been the toughest issue we, we've dealt with in Jeff City in the 10 years I've been here. And it's because it doesn't, it's not Democrat-Republican. No. It's rural. And, and urban as much as anything. And, and a lot of Republicans don't want it because, as you said, the high schools in many communities are the biggest employer, some of the best paid people. The sense of community around football and sports, they just, they just don't want to mess with it. But I think that's changing. Killing Joe Horton, U.S. Senate race, uh, heating up. Tell folks kind of where, you, where your gut says it is right now. You know, I still think it's neck and neck, but there was something interesting that happened this week. And it's no surprise that the Republican candidates are trying to align themselves really close with Trump. And that's certainly a balancing act. You know, we saw what happened with an, with an Alabama race. If, you know, there was a candidate who maybe touted their ties to Trump a little too much and then Trump endorsed the opponent. So, um, you know, the, the oil matador to him. Yeah. yeah. And so it's certainly a very careful balancing act to make. But former Governor Greitens did something this week that I believe at this point in time, he's the only Republican candidate ever in the country um, at this point to say that he wouldn't support Mitch McConnell for for leader. And that's something that Trump has said. And that's an interesting, interesting move. With the Manila Epson, is there who won the week? It grieves me to say this. Uh, as a Royals fan, but the uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Well, I mean, uh, there is a scoreboard, and they keep track of these things. Yeah, absolutely. He's told my answer. Uh, ten, uh, ten, about 10 wins in a row. So Cardinals and the manager. Well, now we're up to 11. By the time folks read this, Scott Toberfest will have been in eight. We could be up to 15, 16. Who won the week? Well, I wasn't going to say the Cardinals. Um, I was going to say Director Carriff, the new Missouri health director. He sat down with us this week for a, about an hour and did a pretty wide-ranging interview on, on where we are with public health. Great visit. Great guy. He's the type of guy that might persuade you to wear a mask. If you Go watch it on our Facebook page. If you want some tips on maybe you got a loved one you want to try to talk into it, I thought he was great. He, he, now, he's going to come hard, but 
He, he's the guy with the health director, right? So maybe he knows. He's got a lot of pop culture rec references, too. I'm going to say, I sat right here in the rotunda last week with Senator Lincoln Hub. As much as I want to say the Cardinals, I thought Lincoln Hub stepping up and talking about the LGBT exhibit that was moved is one of the best answers I've ever had on the show. So I'm going to say he won the week begrudgingly because his ego doesn't need the stroke, but also I, I, you know, the Cardinals maybe a tie. We hope you'll join us back next week from our St. Louis studios for This Week in Missouri Politics. Missouri Politics, sponsored by the Missouri Association of Career Fire Protection Districts, Spire, and Sterling Bank.